So the thesis is the way forward is marked by suffering and assurance. Suffering and assurance are kind of the two main things we're going to talk about today. And then the three headings under that, right? So cross out the headings in your bulletin and put these new ones in there. The first one is just truth. So truth's about suffering. The second one is about the future, how suffering frames our understanding of the future. And third, you could just write the word can't. Suffering can't. There are things that suffering cannot do, and we're going to talk about what that is. So we're going to be looking at Romans 8. We've been spending time in the book of Romans all throughout the fall. I talked to someone this week who said, hey, I haven't been able to come to church much, but I've been listening to the podcast, really been enjoying the sermon series. So hope that, hopefully that's true for so many of us. And today's text arrives at a really critical juncture in the scriptures. Paul has been talking to this church in Rome, this kind of divided church, right? So a big chunk of the church is Gentiles, a big chunk of the church is Jews. They're people from very different cultural backgrounds. And what he's been getting at over and over and over again with them is that there are things that can unite them. And the biggest thing that's going to unite them is the truth. And in today's text, he's talking about the truth. He's talking about suffering in a couple different ways. And he's assuring them that no matter what, and this is especially true for a church in Rome, no matter what kind of things they encountered, what kind of opposition they felt from the wider culture, no matter how marginalized they felt, they have a calling. And Bethany, we have a calling too. God didn't just throw this church together here on the east side for no reason. There is a purpose for us being an expression of his family together. And I want to say that today's text, to me, feels like a theme that many of us are going to get to live into together in the months and years to come. So where does suffering pop up in the text? Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one from the back table. By the way, these uh, scripture journals are available for anybody who wants one. It's just the passages from from the book of Romans and then a place to journal. Please grab one. Uh, Someone gave those to us, and they are such a helpful resource. So Romans 8 is where we're going to be. And I want to read verses 17 and 18 for us so we can hear these words about suffering in their proper context. So Josh just read this first, but I'll read it again, starting in verse 17. If we are children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. There, suffer is a verb, right? Now in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Suffer is a verb and then sufferings, as a noun. They're right next door to each other. The verb in 17 is kind of like solidarity, suffering with someone. There's an implication of sympathy there. It's a condition. It's a state of being. If you've ever walked with someone through a really painful period in their life, if someone that you love has gone through an addiction or job loss, you have experienced what verse 17 is talking about, suffering with someone. And we'll talk about how important that is in God's family in just a little bit. Verse 18 is the noun, and the original Greek, it's pathema, pathema, which can be translated as affliction or oppression. It reminds me of the word pathology. So if you're a pathologist, you study diseases, you study helping people get out of their afflictions. Why is this such an important word? Why do we need these two concepts together? Because the idea of suffering is all over the scriptures, and particularly this word pathema comes up in Paul's letters in some really powerful ways. So we're going to get into a couple of key principles about suffering, some truths about suffering. First truth goes like this, suffering will come. So turn to your neighbor and say, it's just going to happen. 
It's just going to happen. Turn to your neighbor. It's just going to happen. We're grown-ups. We've experienced this. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a promise that suffering will not happen. It doesn't exist. God's people are never promised that if suffering's over here, we'll kind of take a detour and sort of skirt around it. It doesn't exist. If you ever are visiting another church and they tell you that suffering is wrong or that you're a bad person if suffering happens to you, walk out. Don't stay there. Like, that's not true. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, but fear not. I have overcome the world. Troubles will happen. And we're adults and we get this, right? Right? Not really. And we'll get into why we try to avoid the reality of this in just a little while. Suffering will come. It's just going to happen. Second truth, suffering will be part of our pathway to Christ. If you want to be following Jesus Christ, you are signing yourself up for not sunshine and roses all the time. You're signing yourself up for an experience of suffering. Paul writes this to two different churches in two different letters, 2 Corinthians and also in Philippians. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant. Isn't that great? If your sufferings are abundant, friends, you can pray this, you can ask for this promise to be made real in your life. God, my sufferings feel like a truckload right now. And I'm praying, I'm asking like Paul asked, that the consolation that I could experience, the putting back together of my heart and soul, that that could be just as strong as the feeling I have of these sufferings. Philippians 3.10, another example of this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. We experience this as we walk with Christ. If you're a Christ follower, you know this is true. If you're not a Christ follower, if you're connected to people in your workplace, in your school that are not Christ followers, they may not know this. They may not know that the Lord of heaven and earth experienced suffering and that his people are going to experience suffering too. They may say, you know, that's the way you get through stuff. That's the way that, you know, you're sort of able to make sense of the world. And those things are true. But for this to be a tool and a resource and an incredible comfort in the midst of suffering, this is promised for us. And Jesus Christ is our model for that. I think Paul understood this in a really profound way. If you know a little bit of Paul's story, he used to be called Saul. And in his days as this man named Saul, he was a zealot. We probably would have considered him a terrorist in our day. He was a fanatical religious person. He was a member of the Pharisees. He had studied the scriptures. He knew all there was to know about the Bible, but he completely missed mercy and grace and love. He stood by as the first Christian martyr was killed, Stephen. He was stoned to death. And Paul, the scriptures tell us, held the cloaks of those who were killing him. Now, Maybe Paul had something kind of superhuman going on for him. And when he came to follow Jesus Christ, when he took on the name Paul, all the things that he had done, all the suffering he'd participated in, that he had doled out to people, maybe, maybe that just went away. Maybe it was just kind of a closed book. Maybe it just sort of went into a box and it went up in the attic and he never had to think about it anymore. Maybe. I doubt it. Because Paul had a pulse. Paul is a human being, and if you're like him, and if you're like me, if you have suffering in your past, if you have caused suffering, if you are in the midst of it, if you're being reminded of it right now, it's not just like putting it away. It's there. It's a real part of who we are. Paul is telling the church in Rome, don't forget that God understands your suffering. Don't forget that he's going to use this. We're going to get into the promise of 828 in just a minute. And this is some of the background for that. And the reason I'm highlighting this is because for those of us, especially here on the east side, who have experienced success, 
We think we've arrived. We think we found the perfect job, the perfect spouse, the perfect house. Our kids are in perfect schools. If that is our story, then what do we do with suffering? Because it kind of jackhammers through the facade of, we've got it. We've figured it out. We've arrived. No amount of success, Eastsiders, will ever clean up your past. No amount of success will clean up your past. What will give you peace with your past, what gave Paul peace with his past, is Jesus Christ, the companion of our way. Only Jesus gives us peace with who we once were, who we are now, and who we are becoming. Only he can stand there. Only he can make sense of all that suffering. And in these passages, he's saying to the people in these various churches, don't let suffering steer you off course. Don't believe the lie that if you are experiencing suffering right now, something's wrong or you're missing something or you're a terrible person. We know this is true because how many of us, I hope we've all had this experience, not that I hope for suffering for all of us, but I hope for the wisdom that it produces. How many of us have had the experience where you've been through a really cruddy season, whether it was unemployment, whether it was long-term grief, whether it was a breakup, whatever it was, and a few months or maybe in a few years later, you look back and you go, I'm actually glad that happened. Can, can we just say that there have been seasons like that for us? I'm glad that that happened. I, I didn't like it in the moment. I wouldn't sign up for it again. Don't put me back on that train. But I'm glad that that happened. Because suffering can bring a version of freedom for us. Because there are things that we would never have learned had the jackhammer of suffering not been present in our hearts. I have a friend who uh, went through uh, a graduate program very capable, gifted young woman. She took a high-level, high-paying job at a big organization, and after barely 18 months, the whole organization turned over and she was fired, just gone. All that work, all that training, gone. So she took a recovery job, right? Have you had a recovery job where after the big job doesn't work out, you take another job that's kind of like the big job, but maybe not as much, and you try to get that going? She had a recovery job, and the recovery job blew up. Similar thing, leadership transitions, all kind of turnover. She went through tons of pain and distress, tons of going, why is this happening to me? And so she took on an incredibly humbling, low-paying, entry-level job at the local YMCA. And she started to look around. She started to see the people she was serving, people in poverty, people experiencing distress, people facing addiction. And she looked at her own life and she said, you know what? There's a theme here. I need to deal with my addiction. I need to deal with the fact that I've been dealing with my stress through drinking for years. And this is a problem. And I'm not going to do it anymore. She had to lose two jobs and take a very humbling job to then face her reality of suffering. And through this, she's part of AA. Through this, she's getting recovery. Through this, she's in an incredible community. And this is the way of Jesus. This is why belonging to a local church is so vital. She could never make it through the season by herself, ever. But she has this incredible community of people around her, and suffering is her pathway of seeing God's faithfulness in her life and finally getting out from under this addiction that has plagued her for so long. And I know she is thankful for the suffering that she went through, and I look at each of you, and I see it on your faces. You are too. And somebody probably needs to know about the suffering that you've been through. And somebody probably needs for you to come beside them, to put your arm around them, to sit next to them and just say, can I pray for you? How's it going? What are the things that you are facing right now? 
That's being the body of Christ. That's being the church together. This is what Paul is calling the people toward. So he's called the people to stand with one another, to experience this kind of pathway through suffering that creates freedom. And then the last thing I'll say about kind of the nature of suffering is that in 1 Peter 5, 9, it talks about suffering as solidarity. Listen to this. The author says, resist the enemy, be steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters, people in the family of God or around the world, they are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Suffering is good. It can be good for us because it unites us to others. It allows us to be connected with people in the body of Christ around the world who are facing so many afflictions. And friends, if you're a Christ follower this morning, this is why when you read about people starving in Yemen, you don't look away. You pray. You ask for God to use his people in that country to be part of the solution. You ask for peace and relief and for there to be transformation there through the church, through those leaders that God has equipped. And you say, this is unacceptable. People should not be facing this kind of suffering. We should not have people facing starvation. God, would you use your church to be a part of the solution there? In Afghanistan, a country that has never, hardly ever known anything except war for centuries, where soldiers from around the world continue to fight and die and nobody's paying attention to them. The church says, no, we are praying for people who are serving and trying to build peace there because that suffering is unacceptable. And we stand with them. When families and children are separated at our borders, controversial as all get out, there is suffering there. And I think we can step beyond partisanship and say, God, we just want there to be an end to suffering. We don't want those kids and those families to have to experience that brokenness anymore. That's not a political statement. That's a statement of prayer and of solidarity. We don't want them to go through that suffering. So God, bring about your change. Bring about your renewal. Let your church be a part of the solution. Let leaders who follow you shape policy and do things that will make things different. That's a real simple application step, you guys. When you see these things that so break our hearts, are you praying? Am I praying? I have to discipline myself to do it, but when I'm sitting there reading the paper, I want to stop and pray for the things that I know are going on in the world. And we'll take time and pray for that together as a community at the end of our time. Another, que- another question to ask is, Jesus, what do you want me to be seeing through this suffering? My friend that had those jobs and lost them, started to work at the YMCA, she was asking really good questions. God, what do you want me to learn through this? Why does this keep happening to me? What is going on here? There needs to be an end to that. We can't just keep asking that question of suffering over and over and over again. But we need to ask, God, how do you want me to change? What do you want me to learn? What's something I need to be doing different? So that's kind of some big truths about suffering. Hopefully some of those are helpful to you. Now let's talk about the future. And yes, we're going to talk about one of the more controversial passages in all of Romans, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And I just want you to hear these words with me, and then we'll talk about why this is controversial and what it means for us. Verse 28, incredible verse. We know that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, what's so controversial? That word predestination sends up a lot of red flags for a lot of different people, and I get it. Some of us have come from church backgrounds where that word was used in some really poor ways to make us feel bad about ourselves, 
or it wasn't taught very well, it wasn't explained super well. And the sort of shadow side of that, which you may have heard about predestination, is it's this sort of arbitrary, like God picks this person and not this person, and you're in and you're out, and we can know who that is, and we just need to create some barriers around that. And that's a poor way to explain what this actually means. It's a theological idea that has caused real pain. And what I want to say as a leader in the church, on behalf of churches that have caused pain around this, is I'm sorry. If you've experienced pain around this topic in the church, I'm sorry. Now, we still need to get this straight. So let me see if I can offer a helpful perspective into this. And we're going to tie this into suffering, trust me. And I'm coming at this from more of a Reformed perspective. I'm not saying that everyone at Bethany needs to see it this way. We're a community church, and we would say this is a non-essential. Like, you can have disagreement around this. Meaning, if you disagree with me on this, we're still friends. Like, we can hang out. My mentor in seminary came up with a really good way of explaining predestination. And this will apply next week, too, when we're talking about election in Romans 9 through 11. Predestination is a doctrine of assurance. Can you say assurance with me? Assurance. It is a doctrine of assurance. In other words, predestination doesn't mean you get to be all confident and swaggering because you think you're saved, or you need to be all worried because you think you're not saved. What it means is we are assured that God is in charge. We are assured that God knows what he's doing. We are assured that the one who can rightly use power to invite people into his kingdom is God. John Stott, a great Christian scholar, wrote this. Christian hope is solidly grounded in the unwavering love of God. Christian hope is solidly grounded on the unwavering love of God. Predestination improperly taught would tell you, you got to line these things up and make sure these things happen. You got to sort of arrange it all so you can get in or you're out. And it's not about that. It's about assurance. We place our confidence in the one who has promised to do what only he can do, and that is to save people. There is salvation by no other name than Jesus, and he is the gate, and he's the one that assures and provides salvation. That's it. And at Bethany, we're not universalists. We do believe what the scriptures teach that somehow some people will hear this incredible message of salvation and say, no, thank you. It says it right here in the text in verse 9, the second half of it. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Somehow that's going to happen. We don't know how. All we know is that if this is true, then the assurance that God gives to those who he calls to himself is unshakable. And we don't have to worry. And honestly, I think we need to have some caution around power around these types of proclamations. Would you like to have the power to give people salvation or not? I don't want that power. I don't think I would use that power very well. I would not trust myself with that. That power needs to reside in the hands of God and God alone. And it's his to assure us that he is, in our, he is caring for us and giving us the pathway forward. What does this have to do with suffering? Suffering is a reminder of God's power. It is a reminder of his assurance that he is with us and for us. He is teaching us. He wants us to lean in. If 828 is true, then God must have the power to make it true. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and have been called according to his purposes. That can only be true by a God that is powerful enough to make that happen. And we have a part to play in that. If you've read that verse and you've said like, yeah, that's great. I don't know how that helps me with my problems right now. God works together, all things for good. This was on the wall at a church that I served 
when we were in seminary. Like, it's, it's there. This is such an important verse for so many. Here's what I want to invite us to consider in the week ahead. The promise of Romans 8.28, the assurance that God knows who he's going to be with, who is going to follow him, and that is his job and his purview. That gives us, who are trying to follow him, comfort in the suffering we experience right now. And to name God's power and God's provision in your suffering before it ends is an incredible statement of your discipleship. Before it's over, God, I am still grieving the loss of someone in my family. I'm grieving the loss of my grandmother. And I I don't feel like this is ending for me yet. But in the midst of this, I'm going to ask you for your provision. I'm going to count on your care because you've assured me that you were with me. God, I'm in the midst of a terrible season of unemployment. I keep getting all these rejection letters. I can't even get a job at McDonald's. This is terrible. I feel terrible about myself and I feel terrible as a person. But I'm going to thank you now because I know this suffering is shaping me. It's molding me. It's doing something to my heart. It's jackhammering into those deep, dark places in me. And I'm going to thank you now for the good that you're going to provide for me. Suffering properly frames the future because we're confident in God even before our suffering ends. Even before our suffering ends. This provides a correction. There's a reconsideration of a couple of things that we need to hold out. If we believe all things work together for good, if the text says it, it must be true, then we can stop doing a couple of things. We can stop, when we experience suffering, blaming other people. Stop blaming other people when you experience suffering. We live in a time of spin and distraction and mistakes were made and nobody owns real responsibility. Christians need to do nothing with spin. When you've caused pain or suffering, when your team has missed a goal, when you've let somebody in your family down, don't blame other people. Take responsibility. Own what you can own. Keep good boundaries and move ahead. Stop blaming other people. Knock off the gossip after it's all said and done. Secondly, stop blaming other people. Stop blaming yourself when you experience suffering. This is a big problem for me. A misworded email, a broken relationship, a lost opportunity, could have invited somebody in and I didn't. So often I go, well, that just shows you I'm not a good pastor. This, this is my fault. I'm not good at this. It is not all black and white. There is good even in the things that we suffer in. There are elements of even our failures that we need to learn from. So stop blaming yourself when you go through suffering. It may not be your fault. And it is not yours to put yourself on that hook. Start looking for God's hand in your suffering, his calling and his purpose. Look for the refinement that only God can bring through those periods of suffering. I've told this story before, but I think it's helpful. When I was in seminary, I failed a class. I'd never, like, failed a class before in my life. I wasn't a great student, but I didn't fail lots of classes. And when I failed this particular class, New Testament Greek, it made me sort of delay my graduation by a year. I had to retake this whole cycle of classes. It was frustrating. I had this whole plan in my head, and it didn't come together, right? And there was this deep sense of loss for me. I didn't really blame others or myself. I was just more in shock. And for me, there was great comfort in my suffering because I told you guys about this before. My friend Colin, who's still one of my best friends, drove from his house in Kirkland down to where I was living in Tacoma the day after I failed, and he took me to a cup of coffee and he said, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. This is not an indictment of your sense of call. Keep going forward. 
even though it delayed my graduation, even though the suffering was real and it was frustrating and Jill and I didn't know what to do, I would have graduated at a time when there wouldn't have been a real job for me, at least that I knew of after seminary. I was supposed to graduate in 2010, and the job that I eventually ended up taking a year later because of my delayed graduation wasn't even there yet, didn't exist. The church that eventually called us to serve in Colorado, they didn't have a job opening yet. They weren't there in 2010, they were there in 2011. God used even that delay, even that hiccup in my plan, even that change and that challenge for us to spend four wonderful years at a great church. And who knows where we would have been with Bethany if we had graduated when we were supposed to. Do not give up on your calling. Do not release yourself into that suffering and go, well, I've messed this up, so clearly I can't keep going. If you're in a season of frustration in your vocation, keep going. Find a way forward. Ask God, what are you doing here? What would you have me do? So that's suffering as it relates to our calling. Finally, we need to talk about what suffering can't do because we're going to end on a great word of hope. Are you ready for a little word of hope? Everybody kind of shrug your shoulders, move around a little bit. We're talking about suffering, so we got to you know, kind of keep rolling here. Listen to these great words. Paul has been talking at the end of the chapter about who could possibly separate us from God's love. How could God stay with us even with all of our unfaithfulness? And he writes this in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No amount of suffering will tear you away from the God who loves you. No amount of pain that you've been to, no amount of regret, no amount of disappointment in yourself or others can tear you away from how much God loves us and seeks our best. John Stott wrote it this way. This has everything to do with the cross. Since Christ proved his love for us by his suffering, so our suffering cannot separate us from him. Isn't that great? Because Christ's ability to enter into our lives through the cross by becoming a human being, being with us, that's predicated on suffering. That's the foundation. He gets it. So is he not going to let our suffering be the end of our story. And what I want to remind us of is that suffering can't break our identity in Christ. It can't define you and be the end of your story. No matter what period of suffering that you're in, God will end it and he will bring something through it. Suffering cannot be the last stop on the train. And it's not just true for people. It's true for a community. Many of you uh, heard the name Sutherland Springs, Texas for the first time about a year ago because there was a terrible event there and there are kids in the room, so I want to be cautious around this. Sutherland Springs joined the list of cities and towns that was marked by violence, by a mass shooting, November 5th, 2017. Sutherland Springs is a tiny town just outside of San Antonio, Texas. About 600 people live there, very blue-collar town. And you may have read the stories that there was a man who, in the midst of this terrible act of violence, went in and took down the shooter, stopped the violence. And he became kind of this political figure and kind of all these things, I don't think by his own invitation. And a magazine I got wrote up a profile of this man. His name's Stephen Wilford. And he was the guy that went in there to bring an end to this terrible thing that was taking place at his church, at the church there in Sutherland Springs. 
And his year since then has been this tumult where people have taken his story and tried to make it this political statement and all these other things. This story is not about guns and it's not about any of those issues. It's about someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ who has been caught up in something and he's seeing suffering change his community. And so I want to read this very briefly for us as we close. Wilford was up for breakfast on Sunday morning, got up early and then went to church and before the sermon... His pastor led a Bible study over coffee and biscuits in one of the church's large classrooms behind the old chapel, right next door to where the shooting took place. On this day, there were about 40 adults in the room, and there were a few kids running around, and before the discussion began, Wilford made his way around the room. Picture somebody walking around this room, talking to each and every one of us. And he went around to greet as many people as possible. At one table was his friend David Colbeth, who was shot eight times that day. Another was Jennifer Holcomb, who lost her husband, an 18-month-old daughter, in the shooting. Wilford waved to a little girl who'd been hurt. And the room was filled with people who were healing together. Isn't that a great line? The world, the room was filled with people who were healing together. They went to worship together. They heard the sermon. When the service ended, the Wilfords lingered, catching up with some of the other survivors until it was close to 1 p.m. And then they headed home past the small white chapel, past the site of the shootout, past the flowers and crosses and the makeshift memorial, past the church's marquee. And the top of the sign is blue with an image of a white dove and a Bible next to a cross. And below that it reads, evil did not win. Evil did not win. Suffering did not have the last word in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Suffering will not have the last word in your life or in my life. Our God is too powerful. He has too many good things in store for you and for your kids and for your family and for your roommates and the people you love. I see us as a community of people who are healing together. I see us doing this in our worship. I see us doing this in small groups. I see us doing this when people who work at the same company meet up for lunch together and they just encourage each other. I see us as a community that is healing one another and seeking the healing of God for our wider community. Because too many people out there don't know that they can come and be healed and hear this triumphant message that evil does not win here. Evil does not win here, church. Suffering does not win. It is not the end of our story. So if you've been thinking about somebody this morning, if you have been kind of weighing like, man, I should reach out to so-and-so. I know they've been going through something. Please do. In the week ahead, if you're going to see family or if you're doing a Friendsgiving, keep an ear out, keep an eye out for that person. It looks like they're just carrying something heavy because they probably are. And you might be the person that God has sent to care for them. And if you're resonating with what I said earlier about, hey, we're on the east side, we've experienced success, we've kind of arrived, and you've got suffering jackhammering through the facade of success, Who are you telling about that? Who's being let in to that vulnerability? Because you need someone to walk with you through that. You can do that with your small group. You can do that with a mentor. I got a list of counselors I'd love to recommend. I long for us to be a church increasingly where we welcome people in and we say, suffering is not the end of your story. You might have walked in here thinking it was, but it is not. Because our God is the God who is powerful enough to assure something that we could never do for ourselves. That suffering is not the end. It is part of the way forward. Would you join me in prayer?
Gracious God, thank you that you teach us much through the things that we would rather not experience. Whether that's been unemployment, whether that's been the loss of a loved one, whether it's been anxiety and depression and fear, whether it's been this political climate that is just so divisive and so tearing people down, whatever it may be, God, we're thankful that you promised to meet us in the midst of it, that we are assured of your power to rescue us in our suffering. And we don't need to be through our suffering to celebrate and to give you thanks. We can celebrate now. So God, would you give us each the ability in the week ahead to step into your healing, to name it, to call upon it for the sake of others or for ourselves? Would you remind us so powerfully that you do work out all things for good for those who love you and you, however that looks, lead us into your future. Thank you, Father. Use these words in this time to glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name.